Welcome to this week's episode of the All Angles Podcast. Today I am sitting down with Kimmy Carlos. She is the Director of Operations at Princeton Alumni Corps, and she is also the CEO of Kimmy Carlos Motivational Consulting, where her work is, in, is as a speaker, facilitator, and coach for wellness, equity, and justice. Kimmy, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, I uh, you know flew in this morning and was just on the train ride down here. I was pumped to talk to you about mental health. And I think we're going to dive into that. But I think for our listeners, I really want to get to know you a little bit more and what your background is. So, you know, I gave you like a basic introduction, but what else, what else you do? Tell me more about yourself. Absolutely. So, so excited to uh, be here having this conversation with you. Big shout out to, to Ryan for making the connection. Ryan and I are former colleagues. Um, so as you said, I'm the Director of Operations here at Princeton Alumni Corps, but my true passion is work in wellness, equity, and justice. Um, and I am a person with lived experience, so this past November I celebrated 19 years clean and sober. And that was really the impetus for me becoming really passionate about what mental health looks like, what mental illness looks like, and what substance use recovery is. So I started doing this work as an advocate maybe about 15 years ago, mm-hmm. really helping to remove a lot of the stigma around mental health and, and mental health and wellness, and helping people to recognize that mental illness is like any other illness, mm-hmm. and really empowering people with knowledge and information around what that looks like. Yeah. Um, and I work in largely urban communities, so I do a lot of work with black and brown impoverished communities, um, helping them to really be knowledgeable and educated around mental health mm-hmm. and recognizing that our mental health is the most crucial part of our wellness, right? Yeah. But most of us don't really know how to manage our mental health because there's not a lot of public information about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started out being being a volunteer, volunteering with you know as many organizations as I could around mental health education and advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, I went on to found a small nonprofit in the city of, of Trenton here in New Jersey. We were operational for about eight years, teaching what mental health looks like in urban communities, yeah. teaching people how to advocate for themselves, what depression, anxiety, potential suicide looks like. Um, and that was a, a wonderful time, unfortunately. Um, like most small nonprofits, we just simply ran out of money. And then, of course, the pandemic kind of gave us a hard shove into that. Yeah. Um, and I went on to found Kimmy Carlos Motivational Consulting because there was a lot of conversation around the intersection between mental health and social justice and how mental health is indeed a social justice issue, Mm -hmm. um, especially in uh, communities of color, but also in communities that are poor, other communities that are marginalized, our LGBTQ communities, our communities that are uh, disabled, our immigrant refugee communities. How do we make sure that people are empowered to get the services that they need and how they build their skill sets around resilience Mm -hmm. and how to be able to advocate, you know, when themselves or their loved ones um, need assistance. So... That's my passion work. So when Ryan reached out to me and said, I remember this is the work that you used to do when yeah. we launched this podcast, I was, I was delighted to come on and share a little bit more information. Good. No, I'm really excited to talk about this as we were kind of setting up and everything. This is probably one of the more important topics that we're going to be discussing on this first season of All Angles. Awesome. And so I, I, want to, I want to dive into that. But I want to get to know you a little bit more, just who you are as a person and really try to um, dive into where your motivations are through all of this. So my first question is, 
when do you think you realize you had an interest in helping others? And when did that become a passion for you? Uh, that's a great question. So as I said, I'm a person in recovery. I guess I had been in recovery maybe about three years. And I had a child who um, also fell into depression and anxiety. And so we were connected to a parent support group. And that parent support group was the best thing that ever happened to us because it taught my daughter and I a lot of really great skills and she has my permission. I mean, I have her permission to, you know, to share her story mm -hmm. publicly. And so it taught both of us a lot of really great skills around advocacy. But what I found is when I went out and tried to talk to like my family or people in my faith community mm -hmm. or even like my close friends around my recovery from substance use and, and my daughter's recovery from you know depression and anxiety, most people didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. And that was that deeply concerned me because I felt that if if I had known earlier, you know, that I had been struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, and probably mm -hmm. would not have been in substance use for so many years. Right? Yeah. And so really just grieved my heart that not only was there not a lot of education, but there was so much stigma and fear around it that people really didn't want to have a conversation around it. So I guess I was like maybe in my early 40s when I was, you know, and the kids were like just coming, just beginning to graduate yeah. high school and I found myself with, you know, a lot more free time. and. That really became my passion, you know, wanting to get that information out there, but also empowering people so that they can take care of themselves and take care of their loved ones is really important, right? Yeah. Um, and I love to facilitate, I love to teach, I love to present, and so it was kind of a natural thing for me to bring this information that I'm so passionate about and use the skills that I have in the community, mm -hmm. you know, to share that information. Um, and I, you know, got to be known in the community as a safe person, yeah. meaning, you know, people could reach out to me for information around mental health and know that it was going to be confidential, mm -hmm. that there wasn't going to be any judgment, there wasn't going to be any mm -hmm. humiliation, and that I was going to really work to be a, a conduit for them. And once I realized that when people felt safe yep. and they felt like they had a place to turn to for resources, once I realized that, um, then that's when I decided to, to launch the nonprofit so that people would have that safe space, yeah. you know, um, and build alliances with, with organizations in the community so that they could also learn how to provide safe, safe spaces for people. So it was in, this, in my, you know, second half of life that I started doing this, yeah. this work, you know. Yeah, it wasn't like you, you graduated and then like came into it. Like it, it took you some time and some life experience to really... Oh, it definitely did. I, I spent a large part of my career in corporate America, yeah. you know, where it was all about just trying to make the money and pay the mortgage so that I could raise my kids, you know. I wanted to raise my kids in a, a nice suburban neighborhood. I wanted them to have a good public school system. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to have a backyard to play in, yep. you know, the American dream. And so I spent a good part of my career in corporate America. But once my kids graduated and, like I said, I came into recovery um, and I realized that, that mental health advocacy was really the work that I wanted to do, yeah. I walked away from a nice piece of money <laughs> yeah. you know, to say I want to do you know, nonprofit yeah. work and I want to really help others. So that came that came later and I'm, mm -hmm. so, I'm so grateful that it did, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how do you keep your your passion going, right? You've been doing this now for for a long time and how do you what kind of I guess refills that cup of yeah. yours? Excellent question, excellent question. So I actually asked that same question <laughs> to Dr. Angela Davis 
who um, was here at Princeton University some years ago, um, and I said, you know, I have been doing this work for a while, so mm-hmm. I want to answer you twofold. First, I want to tell you what Dr. Davis said. So I, I, she came and spoke, and I was fortunate enough to go have dinner with her afterwards, and I asked her that question, and she said, you know, in all this advocacy work that you do, it can definitely burn you out. She said, but you always seek joy, you chase joy. Mm-hmm. You find those things in life that give you yeah. joy that fills up your cup. And so that was great advice. And so I actually teach that advice to others when, mm-hmm. I, keep, when I coach them. But for me personally, um, I have been so fortunate to find out that this is my gift yeah. and my calling. Mm-hmm. I'm one of few people that can stand up um, in a room and teach about you know, preventing suicide and be excited about it. Yeah. You know, teaching about substance use disorder and being excited about it. And so I know that, that this is my calling, right? Yeah. Um, after spending 20 plus years in, you know, active substance use disorder, um, just knowing that all of that brought me to this place, mm-hmm. you know, where I can stand up and facilitate and teach and do a lot of keynote speaking, that fills my cup yeah. because I'm operating in my purpose, and it, so it doesn't exhaust me. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean that I don't get tired, because I certainly do. Of course, and I have does. to go. Mm-hmm. You know what I call rest and restore. Um, but after you rest and restore, then it's easy to return. Mm-hmm. You know if that's a gift. And so I'm fortunate that I literally stumbled into um, what I was created to do, and yeah. that's what keeps me. You know, running some years ago, somebody came to me in one of the one of the organizations I was volunteering with, mm-hmm. and said, "You know, you have a great story." And that's because anybody that would listen, I would tell them my story. Yeah. <laughs> she goes, "You know, you have a great story. We would love to have you be our keynote." And I was like, stunned. Like, yeah. what? <laughs> you know what a keynote is? Yeah. Um, and that very first time, I stood up and told my story, and you know, as a public speaker. I knew right then and there, I was like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And that fills my cup every time I do it. That's amazing. And yeah. I, I mean, especially with the, the kind of topics that you mentioned that you're talking about, they're deep and really can be emotionally exhausting topics for someone right. um, who is in the position, but also someone who's working with that person. And so right. having that ability to like, one, finding the joy in that of being able to help someone move through that, right. I think, you know, it says a lot about kind of where your passion is, kind of what you said you were born to do that. Um, which I think is important. I want to I wanna kind of dive in a little bit more into your background. You kind of talk about your family a little bit else. And from what I'm told, you have a very unique family story. And, you know, Brian and I were kind of going back and forth when they asked, but I have to, I'm very curious of this, right, is I'd love to know a little bit more about your father and just uh, his background because I think it's really cool. Yeah. Um, at the same time, um, he was, from what I'm told, he was recognized um, with the National Museum of African American History and Culture with a statue and everything. So yeah. we'd love to know kind of the emotions around that. You were yeah. there that day and everything. Just tell me that story. Tell me the story a little bit. Just <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, let's throw it all the way back. Um, yeah. So my father is Dr. John Carlos, 1968 Olympian. Um, he is a bronze medalist in the 440 relay. Um, and he was in the 1968 Olympics, Summer Olympics in Mexico City. Yeah. And he and who I claim was my two uncles, Tommy Smith and Peter Norman. Um, Tommy Smith was, uh, I'm sorry, is uh, our gold medalist for the 440 relay. Peter Norman was, he's passed now, our silver medalist mm. for the 440, and my dad was the bronze medalist. Mm. So three superheroes. Um, you know, Olympians yeah. who had spent 
all of their young lives, because they were all very young at the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, making it to the Olympics. And then during the national anthem, after they had received their awards and the national anthem, and they're standing, you know, on the podium on the world stage, my father and Tommy Smith raised their fists with black gloves. Mm-hmm. People have, um, down through the decades, called that the black power salute or the black protest. Mm-hmm. But in the Carlos family, we call that the demonstration. Mm-hmm. My father and Tommy Smith and Peter Norman, a lot of people don't know, um, were demonstrating on behalf of um, black, brown, marginalized communities because, as my father says all the time, being born and raised in Harlem, here he was, you know, this young black man who's yeah. only 23 years old. He had a wife and a child, and mm-hmm. at the time there was three. And um, he knew that while he was, you know, being praised and all these accolades on the world stage, that he was still going to come back to a country where he was viewed as less than human. Yeah. And he wanted to represent all of the, the black and brown service workers, you know, who worked in very rich elite mm-hmm. homes and businesses and were barely making enough money to make a living. Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted to represent police brutality. Mm-hmm. He wanted to represent all the ways that he saw that um, black and brown humanity was was marginalized and oppressed. And so he wanted to draw attention to that, as did Tommy Smith, who spoke largely for the Deep South, which mm-hmm. is where he was from. Yeah. Peter Norman, the only reason he didn't have his fist in the air was because he didn't have a glove. Mm-hmm. But Peter Norman was also protesting all the inequality that he saw in Australia, which is yeah. where he was from. Um, and he's, incidentally, Peter suffered a lot of backlash when he went back to Australia, mm-hmm. and he never denounced my father or Tommy Smith. You know, they said if you would just denounce what they did on the podium, and he refused to do that until yeah. the day he died. Mm-hmm. He believed in that. Um, and so my father's social justice giant, he has spent the last 50 plus years yeah. traveling all over the world talking about what social justice looks like, civil rights, mm-hmm. motivating our younger generations. So. Um, my dad and my stepmom, my mom is, is passed now, and I'll get back to that in a moment. My, my dad and my stepmom, uh, we honored them in uh, early 2019. So with my siblings and I, between my, my dad and my stepmom, there's six siblings. My siblings and I, we all came together and we threw a 50th anniversary gala for my dad celebrating awesome. 50 plus years of social justice work. Yeah. So that's where I get my passion around mm-hmm. social justice work. Yeah. And I've been doing work in mental health for a few years before I realized that this is social justice work for me, right? Yeah. And um, I um, I talked a little bit about you know the traumas that I suffered as a child. And the biggest trauma, which is also public knowledge for anybody who you know looks it up, my biggest trauma was in 1978. We lost my mother to suicide. Mm-hmm. That was um, a trauma, obviously, to my father, mm-hmm. to myself, to mm-hmm. my brother, my younger brother who's five years younger than me. You know, my mother's parents were still alive back then. All of her siblings were still alive. And it took me years to realize that, uh, you know, all the adults in my world were so traumatized and so grieving that they never had a chance to really sit down and talk to a little child about why she had lost her mother. Yeah. Um, and so I was 12 at the time. And by the time I was 14, I was in full-fledged active alcoholism and yeah. stayed that way for more than 20 years. And it, it, was in, it wasn't until later when I came into recovery in my late 30s that I even learned about what trauma looked like, what depression mm-hmm. looked like, what uh, social anxiety looked like, all of which I'm sure came out of you know losing my mother. Yeah. Not to mention a lot of what we suffered as a family, you know, in terms of backlash sure. because of my father's demonstration. But to me, my father is a giant. Yeah, he never backed down from what he believed in, 
And when I started having conversations with him, I said, listen, you know, I, I need to tell my story, but if you don't want me to tell my story, I won't because people will know that that's attached to you. Yeah. He said, I will never stand in the way of what you were called to do. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. he said, this is what you were created to do. Um, and so my dad and my stepmom are, are my biggest fans. Yeah. I will never, ever be able to fill my father's shoes because he's been doing this literally his entire adult life. Yeah. You know, um, but he is... He's my hero. He's also my biggest fan. You know, he supports yep. the work that I do. Yeah. And, um, you know, he always tells me, one day you're going to supersede me. I have to stay ahead of you. <laughs> you know, because you're going you're gonna to blow up. You're gonna, always you're always the racer, always the competitor then. <laughs> I tell him all the time, that'll never happen. I'll yeah. never be able to fill his shoes. But it motivates me, you know, to know that... Um, that, that I live with the Carlos name, yeah. you know, and that he is indeed um, a legacy that myself and my siblings have had the opportunity to, to, to sit under and learn, mm-hmm. you know. So that's where a lot of my passion comes from. And then I'm just, I'm literally gifted with talk because it comes from my dad. You know, my dad's yep. the same way. Yep. He's like, I don't need anything prepped. Just ask me questions, I'll answer. Yeah. You know? And I realize that that's a gift. I'm very yeah. fortunate, you know. Yeah. yeah, it takes a special person to be able to do that. Yeah. No, I and one, I appreciate you sharing that story and everything else. I know, as you said, it's critical to getting to know you and just having that background, whether it's with your father's work or with your um, with your substance abuse that you went through, and like all those things kind of shape who you are and how you uh, consult and advise and coach and all right. that. And so I right. do appreciate that. And I think I want to dive into mental health a little bit. But the first question, I, th- I think this question is something that I always like to ask um, students that I work with and everything on, at the end of calls, is how are you? And I want, and how often do you answer this truthfully? That's a great question. Yeah. That's actually one of my coaching questions. Okay. Like, you're turning it back on me. <laughs> <laughs> See so, how you can answer this one. Yeah. I'm going to answer you truthfully. Okay. Right? Outside of this cold, which is why my voice is so gravelly, outside of this cold, I'm in a good place right now. I was just having a conversation with a close friend of mine. We've been friends for more than 30 years. We were friends like when all of our kids were in diapers. And I was saying, you know, I'm in a really good place. The kids are all grown up. My kids and grandkids, you know, the kids are both married. They gave me six beautiful grandchildren. Everybody's healthy. My parents are healthy. You know, finances is good. Yeah. I love my faith community. Yeah. I'm able to live in my calling. I work for a great organization that supports all of the outside work that I do. Yeah. You know, um, I'm healthy. Mm-hmm. So I'm in a really great place right now. Yeah. But I am not in a place of comfort or complacency. Mm. I never want to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah. You know, I always want to continue to grow. I never want to arrive. So there's always this drive in me to continue to keep learning and keep growing because I do believe you know as a Christian in our Christian scriptures it says teachers and preachers are held to a higher standard and I never want to do more harm than good so I'm always learning always growing always researching so that when I do speak facilitate coach you know I'm empowering people Mm -hmm. and never bringing more harm so Mm -hmm. I'm in a really good place Um, but, but you know remain humble in that I'm always in learning mode. Yeah. You know. No, yeah. Um, how often do I ask myself that? Um, on a pretty consistent basis, yeah. I do because, again, I want to make sure that I'm bringing my best self. Yeah. Right? Yep. And 
for a person who's in recovery, you have to keep that question front and center anyway to remain sober, mm-hmm. right? And so I always have to do that head-to-toe check, what's going on, paying attention to my own triggers, my own stressors, and knowing when to say, you know what, I can't do that, I have to back up yeah. right now. So I ask that question on a pretty you know, regular basis, mm-hmm. not so much how are you doing, but more around how's your stress level, yep. how's your triggers, yep. you know, have you eaten, have you slept, are you thirsty, you know, why are you feeling irritable, what's stressing you that you're not paying attention to, mm-hmm. you know, which is one of the reasons why I love working with Alumni Corps so much because we are a very um, team-oriented organization yes. and wellness, equity, and justice is a big part of the work that we do here mm-hmm. um, and so it complements you know, my own philosophies. So in answer to your question, I'm doing pretty good. Good, good. Yeah, I just, I always am fascinated by that question just because, and it, this really ties into that mental health is someone, you ask, meet them on the street, or maybe it's an acquaintance or friend, they're like, how are you doing, right? It's just, right. good, doing fine. Yeah. And that, that's always the answer. Even if you're not, you right. just have to put on that face that you are. And so it's always, it's always interesting to see what the answers are when, when you really emphasize that you want to know an honest answer not just like your standard answer well you know what I, t- I do I'll share this with you you can take this with you okay. um, when I do coaching whether it's individual or group coaching mm-hmm. I always ask people what's good mm. and where do I need to hold space for you Okay. right yeah. because it would be easy to say what's good for you and people would say this and this and this is good and you'll never know that they might still be struggling somewhere. Yeah. so I always say where can I hold space for you in other words if you need 10 minutes of my time Let's hold this as a safe space where you can have a conversation. Yeah. You know, and you'd be amazed at how many times people are not only surprised but deeply appreciative yeah. that you even asked that question. No, exactly. You know? No, I so, definitely get that. Yeah, I'll yeah. put that in my back pocket yeah. and use it to people. So let's dive into mental health a little bit, right? Okay. That's what that's what we're here for. Yeah. So one very simple question. Why should people care about mental health? Why is it important? Right. That is an excellent question. So it's important to understand that everything comes from our brain, mm-hmm. right? Our brain literally regulates everything. It mm-hmm. regulates um, physically how our organs work. It regulates um, how we think. It regulates our emotions, how we feel. It regulates how we behave. And so just think if that doesn't work, right? Yeah. Then that means... You can't work, you can't hold down a career, you can't run a household, you can't manage relationships, you can't manage families, right? And most people don't understand that, especially today, where we live in a real-time, high-stress you know, yeah. world, right, that's so closely connected now with everything virtual and electronic, mm-hmm. um, that it's very easy for us to get an overload and to be stressed. But because we're not really taught what mental health is, yeah often we don't even begin to be proactive or preventive around mental illness until we have a crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so our mental health is our ability, in very layman's terms, our mental health is our ability to live, love, laugh, and learn. Yeah. Right? Our mental health is our ability to live, love, laugh, and learn. Yeah. Which are all things that we as human beings want to do naturally, right? Our inclination is to live and thrive and be happy. But what we've learned how to do is we've often learned how to function in dysfunction. Okay. We've learned how to function mm-hmm. in stress. Yep. We've learned how to function in toxicity, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then there's this stigma that somehow we're weak, you know, yeah. if we're struggling with depression or anxiety mm-hmm. because we live in very much a culture of put yourself up by your bootstraps and don't complain, yeah. right? Um, and people of color especially are taught that. 
And so it's it's really, really important for people to recognize that there was a time when we didn't talk about cancer. Yeah. We definitely didn't talk about like breast cancer or prostate cancer, mm-hmm. right? We didn't talk about HIV and AIDS, yeah. right? Now we have whole months of awareness around those things yeah. because people said we're gonna keep talking, mm-hmm. right? And so it's important that we do the same thing for mental health, that we start to normalize having that conversation. Yeah. Like, we need to have mental health days, yes. right? Where when I, instead of calling and saying, I have a really bad cold, call and say, I need a mental health day. Yeah. You know? And that's okay. Take, it's okay to it's take okay a break. To have, right, it's, mm-hmm. it's absolutely okay to have a mental health break, mm-hmm. right? But I know that there's a lot of stigma around that, and there's a lot of stigma in different ways. I know that it's extremely hard for men to normalize that, yeah. right? Again, because in this culture and in many cultures around the world, we have this bravado, mm-hmm. you know, where you have to wear this mask, don't feel anything, don't show any emotion. Don't, man up. Don't show, man up, yeah, do man up don't mm-hmm. show a crack in your armor, right? Yep. When you're a little kid and you fall off the bike and you skin your knee and your dad's like, get back on that bike, stop crying. Yeah. Incidentally, that's what my father said too, like, <laughs> you know, to me all the time, yeah. right? What are you crying for? Get up off that ground. Yeah. You know? Um, and it teaches our children that they're not supposed to be in touch with their feelings, mm-hmm. but they're supposed to be detached yeah. somehow. And what that does is that removes us from our humanity, mm-hmm. right? We were created to be emotional, thinking, multidimensional mm-hmm. people, um, but we're taught not to be in tune with a lot of that, yeah. right? And so it's important to embrace that and recognize that mm-hmm. and not only recognize when we're going into crisis but how how to manage wellness yeah. like what do we do to keep ourselves well yeah. right the same way we keep our skin healthy and our teeth healthy and our hair healthy and we want to make sure that we're eating for heart health and yeah. you know paying attention to so many other things uh, making sure that we're managing uh, carbs and sugar so that we don't tip into diabetes and you know blood pressure mm-hmm. with the salt and you know a whole host of other ways mm-hmm. that we're preventive and managing that we need to do the same thing for our mental health right yeah so when i coach i teach people to be um to manage four areas of their wellness their mental and emotional their physical their financial and their spiritual right yeah. all of that um, is part of your wellness and when you manage those four things you are indeed managing your mental health because mm-hmm. think about how difficult it is on your mental health if you financially can't make ends meet yeah think about how difficult it is on your mental health if you are having serious physical health challenges mm-hmm. think about how difficult it is on your mental health if you are struggling with a spiritual crisis Right, And so all of that has an impact on your mental health. And if you can proactively say, okay, I'm going to build what I call a self-care strategy. Yeah. Because self-care is so much more than, you know, I'm going to go to the spa or I'm going to get my nails done or or even I'm going to take a mental health day. Yeah. You know, self-care is looking at um, what your needs are, what your triggers are, what traumas and baggage you need to still heal from, yeah. surrounding yourself with people who are going to be your support network, who encourage you, who support you, you know, saying no to toxic people, places, and things. All of this goes into building a self-care strategy yeah. so that you're empowered, you know, around your own mental health, right, as opposed yeah. to when you run into crisis. That's why the American Heart Association wants to teach you how to have a healthy heart, number yes. one, but number two, how to recognize signs of potential heart attack, potential stroke, mm-hmm. or even potential heart disease, right? Yep. They're saying to you, this is what you do to be healthy, and this is, some in case you're not healthy, <coughs> 
excuse me, we want to do the same thing with our mental health. We want to see mm-hmm. this is what healthy mental health looks like, and this is what potential signs of mental illness are, yeah. right? So that you can be proactive around that. So the short answer is everything stems from your brain. Yes. Everyone has mental health, mm-hmm. but most people don't think about their mental health until there's a crisis, Yes. right? Um, just like if you don't brush your teeth, you know, yep. or if you don't change the oil in your car, yeah. right? That you're going to have problems mm-hmm. with those things, right? And so when we remove that stigma and we think about mental health in terms of our brain being an organ like any other organ, we want to take care of that as best we can. Mm-hmm. And we want to recognize signs for when there might be challenges, you know, yeah. and remove that stigma around, well, you must be weak, yeah. you know, or you must have done something wrong and so you're cursed and a whole host of other, you know, yep. misunderstandings around that. Yeah, and you know your your answer kind of brings me to two questions. So I think the first one is the stigma question, right? right? Is you talk about one of the reasons you got into this line of work is because the stigma you saw. Right. So have you seen a have you seen it like an improvement on the like people talking about mental health, right? right? This is, the, we're recording in December, and so November was right. kind of, and this is newer, I, I believe, it was like right. Men's Mental Health Month. It used to be November, you talk right. about prostate cancer, but right. now they've kind of extended that out, and this right. is just the beginning. So I guess like my question, like, have you seen that kind of improvement um, for the stigma? And at the same time, we kind of touched on men. You know, I know a lot of my audience will be primarily men, so talking right. about that is, you know, what can men who uh, think about or think about mental health, how can men help other men remove that stigma? Right. Okay, so let's talk about the stigma in general yes. first. So there's stigma for a whole host of reasons, right? And different cultures, races, and ethnicities have different reasons why there's stigma. Yeah. But the large part of it is that it's scary, mm-hmm. right? A lot of people often don't understand when they see behaviors that might be outside of whatever that culture considers the norm, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And anything that we don't understand, we fear, right? So if we see someone who's depressed, if we see someone who's in psychosis, if we see someone who's in substance use disorder, we already have our own preconceived notions about that, right? The second piece is that there is not a lot of public information around mental health mm-hmm. now. Having said that, it's getting a lot better. Yes. Right? We do have um, Mental Health Awareness Month in May. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people may not know we have what we call Minority Mental Health Awareness Month in July. Okay. Um, we have Mental Illness Recognition Week in October. And then, like you said, in November, we have Men's Mental Health Month. So information is getting out there. Yeah. But there's still a lot of stigma in terms of the way we criminalize mental health. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stigma around the way we um, treat people of color when it comes to mental health. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stigma around not having um, accurate resources in communities around yeah. mental health. Yeah. Um, and then also, as I said, we come from a culture of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and somehow it's a character defect if you say, you know, I'm broken. I need help. Yeah. I'm struggling, right? Yeah. Every year in October in towns all across the country, there is an insane asylum haunted house, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Where we are making fun of those who are mentally ill. Yeah. Right? Every time there is a mass shooting, somewhere along the line in the news, it comes out, well, they had mental health challenges, yeah. right? 
um, or they must have been delusional, mm-hmm. right? Um, again, criminalizing mental health and giving people the impression that those who are struggling with mental illness must somehow be violent, mm-hmm. right? Or must be criminals, yeah. right? And then, in, um, unfortunately, in a lot of our faith communities, there's a lot of concern around um, talking about mental health um, in terms of it being separated from faith, yeah. right? And so a lot of faith communities have not started yet to really address that biological, physical aspect of it mm-hmm. and giving people permission to say in the church, in the mosque, in the temple, that I'm, I'm not okay, yeah. right? So I think there's a lot of factors why there's you know stigma around it. Like I said, there's a lot of historical, cultural, social reasons why yeah. across ethnicities and races and faiths. Um, but I do think it's getting better. Okay. And I'm only one of many people you know, who yeah. are carrying the torch and saying, we need to have a conversation about this and we need to do this, you know, openly, mm-hmm. right? And I'm seeing more and more people coming to the forefront and saying, yes, I'm one who lives with depression. I'm yeah. one who lives with anxiety disorder. So that the conversation will, will begin to be mainstream, yeah, right? And there's not there's so much humiliation and fear around it. You know, not everybody is as tenacious and fearless as I am, mm-hmm. right? So... Once somebody said to me, well, Kimmy, you know, you, you're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and social anxiety disorder and clinical depression. Yeah. I was so delighted that someone finally, you know, explained to me, oh, so it's not like what's wrong with me. Yeah. But that something is wrong with me. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And so I remember telling everybody, well, you're the doctor said, this is why, this is why. Yeah. You know, not everybody's going to be as tenacious mm-hmm. as that. Right? Um, because I'm like a, you know, like a duck water just rolls off my back. I don't care what you think. You yeah. know? But not everybody is like that. And so if we don't normalize the conversation, people are going to continue to live in fear. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And there are, there are whole families that keep mentally ill family members you know, still locked in rooms and in basements because yeah. they don't want people to know. Mm-hmm. Right? And alcoholism is considered the acceptable illness because it's legal. Yeah. You know, but I tell people all the time, if, if alcohol had been illegal, I would have been in the crack house. Yeah. You know? Yep. The only reason I wasn't was because it was it was legal. Yeah. If I walked into a liquor store and bought a pint of liquor, nobody said anything. No. You, you know, could just I, do I it. I drink myself under the table. No. As long as I went to work the next day, I paid my mortgage, you know? Yeah. And so... There's a lot of stigma around it. And then, you know, the criminalization of marijuana, the criminalization of crack cocaine, but now treating, you know, um, um, you know opioids as, as a health crisis, right? Yeah. So a lot of politics that went into that, um, the way things were socialized when it came to um, helping communities and her- helping certain populations. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of reasons why, you know, stigma is out there and there's a lot of yeah. fear, right? But I think in answer to your question, yes, we've done a lot of work um, bringing awareness to it and chipping away at that stigma. Yeah. Um, and we want to continue that momentum, continue yes. to have that conversation. So I'm just one little person out there mm-hmm. still saying, let's keep talking about this. Yeah, right. like we're making progress, but there's still a long, it's a, sol- right. still a long road ahead. Right, right. right. And it probably will never be solved, but it's that it's that constant yeah. communication of it. And growing well, I've already, I've already accepted the fact that it won't be solved in my lifetime. Yeah. I'm, I'm old enough to be your mother, I'm sure. <laughs> it won't be solved in my lifetime, but... You know, I will die knowing that I've been planting seeds yes. that my kids and grandkids hopefully will reap the benefits from. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, you're fine. 
But your second question was yes. around men and mental health, right? Yeah, and how can how can men help other men remove that stigma? Right. So let me share some things with you. So men have the highest category when it comes to suicide and potential suicides. Mm-hmm. They also have the highest category with completed suicides. Yeah. Okay. One of the major reasons for that is that men don't often form as intimate relationships with their friendships as women do. Mm. That's not to say that men don't have good friends, best friends, right? But it's not always as intimate, Yeah. okay? Women talk about very intimate things. Mm -hmm. We build very intimate relationships. We watched our mothers and grandmothers and aunts do that. And so we know how to do that. Men don't often see that, so they don't know how how to build that intimacy. So typically men will have that intimacy with the women in their lives, whether it's their wife, their fiance, their girlfriend, Mm -hmm. their mother or sister. But if for some reason a man doesn't have that intimacy with a woman and then he doesn't have that that network of intimacy with men, they often feel alone. Mm -hmm. And there's a real fear of saying, I'm broken, right? Because it will affect your masculinity and the way people view you, right? Or at least that's how most men feel. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly how society treats our men, right? It absolutely does, right? And so um, I think one of the ways that we can that men can really begin to normalize that is having those conversations with each other, right? And saying, are you good? Yeah. Are you okay? What do you need? And then really having that conversation, you know, and giving space for each other to say, I'm not good. Yeah. I'm struggling right now. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm angry. I'm scared. I'm worried. I'm not sleeping at night. I'm drinking too much, whatever it is, you know. But having space to do that without feeling like you're going to be somehow judged or humiliated right yes. and that takes courage mm-hmm. that takes a lot of courage so I don't want to trivialize this in any way oh we'll just go and do it because yep. it takes a lot of courage to say I'm hurting I'm, I'm broken yeah. right and I think that if men gave each other spaces to be able to do that safe mm-hmm. spaces to really have those conversations mm-hmm. right and really bonded in those areas, it would begin to normalize having those conversations. And then I think, so the onus is on men to do that with each other. But I think we as a culture, as a society in this country, we also have to give men room to do that, right? Because we've all got our our biases, including me, Mm -hmm. right? For sure. Um, My brother was a 30 year Marine. You know, if I was to see him cry, I'd probably be like, (gasps) It'd be, it'd be like you sit back in your seat like you just you know, wouldn't expect that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because that's the way we've been socialized, mm-hmm. right? So we, as a culture, also have to give men room to be able to be emotional creatures, yeah. right? And to be in touch with all the sides of yourself, yeah. right? And recognize that being broken, being in pain, does not mean weakness. Yeah. It is the most courageous thing in the world to be able to say, I need help. You know, it mm-hmm. really is. Mm-hmm. Um, the first couple of years out of recovery, I didn't tell anybody anything. Yeah. You know, um, in the first couple of years into recovery, the first couple of years out of rehab, um, I didn't tell anybody anything because yeah. I was scared to death that people were going to view me as, you know, this strong woman. Yeah. And it took a lot of courage for me to stand up on that stage that one time and say, you know, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and yeah. this is my story, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I was fortunate that I was volunteering with an organization at the time that was very supportive 
and um, and very empowering, yeah. right? Um, we need to do that as a whole in society. We need to create supportive, empowering environments. Um, and then I also deeply believe that we need to do two things with our young young folks, with our our old teenagers, yep. <laughs> with our young adults, yep. and that includes our young men, right? We need to teach what self advocacy looks like. Mm. Right, okay. so that you recognize how to speak up on your own behalf, yep. how to find the support that you need, where to get services, right, so that you know your rights. Yeah. Right. We need to teach self advocacy, which is something we do not teach. Yeah. Um, and we need to teach proactive resilience, mm-hmm. right? And proactive resilience means actively, intentionally building those resilient skills. Yes. Right. I mean, most of us are pretty resilient, or the human race would just die out. Mm-hmm. But we need to learn active, proactive resiliency skills, yeah. right? So that we can learn how to bounce back, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. we can do that without feeling like we don't have the support that we need because part of that resiliency building is building that support. For right? sure. So you don't have to run around telling everybody I'm depressed, but if yeah. you have a group of people, if men have just two or three other men yeah. that they know that they can go to, whether it's a father or grandfather, an uncle, a, a, a frat brother, or, or best friend, or colleague, whoever. Yeah. Two or three men that you know you can go to, you trust them, they're not going to humiliate you, they're not going to you know, betray your confidence. Yep. You can have a real conversation with them. Yeah. Right? Because men can go to their, like I said, their, their wives and their mothers and their sisters, but I can't tell you how to be a man yeah. or what you feel like as a man. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't, only other men can do that. Right? Yeah. And so men have to have those safe communities and that's part of resilience. Um, so I think there's a lot of ways that, that men can hold themselves and each other accountable for yep. being responsible for your mental health. But I think as a community, you know, as a village, we need to give men room yeah. To, to be emotional and be in touch with mm-hmm. what your mental health is because we need you guys, yeah. you know, and we need you healthy, yeah. right? Um, and if, if that's the case, if we're saying we want you to be strong mm-hmm. and healthy and be your best self, mm-hmm. then we have to give you room to be able to do that and empower you with the resources that you need. Um, and I think we're going to get there. Yeah. You know, I think we're going to get there. I'm watching step my... I'm watching my daughter and my son-in-law and the way they're raising my two grandsons. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, yes, because I so <laughs> did not do that with my yeah. son. You know, so I'm watching them and I'm like, they're doing it right. Yeah. You know, they're telling my grandsons, use your words. Tell me what's going on. What are you feeling? What's in your head? Yeah. No one ever said that to me as a kid. Yeah. I guarantee you, nobody ever said that to my brothers. I definitely didn't say that to my son. Yeah. You know, so I'm watching them, and I'm like, this generation, they know what they're doing. Yeah. You know, so I think it's, I think it's changing. Yeah, it has to you start, know? and I, I really like your answer about the, I, I, it all makes sense, right? Is that we have to find those people. I look at even like from a personal stance. I look at like my brothers or my father, like. There was a comedian I saw somewhere that talked about like their fathers, like you know, your father doesn't have friends. He has your mother's friends' husbands that yeah. he hangs out with, right? And so I, that that thing just sticks in my head of like right. every day that I go on, I'm like I am gonna keep my core friend group right. because I I I need that, right? That's Those are the guys that I go to right. for to talk about those things exactly. more than anyone else, right? Exactly. Um, that is who I have to go to because you talk about that shared experience. Can you touch on a little bit of those, uh, maybe some resiliency tips? You kind of you kind of touch yes. on, but like, what are some other things that 
people can do, not just men yes. or anything, but what are, what are some other things yeah. um, that people can yeah, do? Yeah, I'm going to tell you what I typically teach people um, when I'm coaching or when I'm doing workshops. So the first thing I tell people is that your your mental, your uh, physical health is really important, mm-hmm. okay? And there's some very basic things, mm-hmm. all right? Make sure you're getting your checkups. Yes. Right? That means going to the doctor, going to the dentist, handling any physical health challenges that you might have, mm-hmm. make that a priority, mm-hmm. right? And then basic kindergarten stuff. Make sure you're eating healthy. Cut out caffeine or limit it. Cut yeah. out sugar or limit it. Yeah. Make sure you're getting your rest. We live in a state where if we're not productive, we feel like somehow we're unworthy. Mm-hmm. You know, give yourself the opportunity to get the rest that you need yeah. and then get up and move, yeah. right? Have some sort of healthy movement. Mm-hmm. You don't all have to be athletes like my father. I definitely am not, yeah. right? But some sort of healthy movement. Walk around the block, play tennis, go to the YMCA and mm-hmm. swim, dance, whatever makes you happy, mm-hmm. right? But have some healthy movement. So do the basic stuff for your physical health yes. because that's important, okay? Because remember, your brain is a part of your physical health, yeah. right? The other thing is that you want to set boundaries, and boundaries are really, really important. And again, most of us don't know how to set boundaries, especially women. Yeah. So what boundaries means is that you want to make sure that people, places, and things are not impacting your physical and mental health, mm-hmm. right? So moving away from things that are toxic and, and stressful. Now, there's some certain situations where we don't may not have a whole lot of control, right? Yeah. So I tell people, build your strategy one of two ways. If you find yourself in a situation that's not conducive for your physical and mental health, you have two choices. Build your strategy how you're going to fix it. Yeah. Or build your strategy how you're going to get out of it. Yeah. Right? But set those boundaries. Say that I'm worthy of being happy and healthy, and I am not going to let anything infringe upon that. Yeah. So build boundaries around your time. Build boundaries around your priorities. Build boundaries around those good relationships that you have. Mm-hmm. Right? So as an example, for me, my number one priority is staying sober. That's my number one priority. Yeah. Right? And anything that even remotely is going to affect um, me potentially falling out of sobriety immediately gets eliminated from mm-hmm. my life, mm-hmm. right? If it's going to put me in a situation where I'm going to be so stressed or I'm going to be influenced to think that I need to go have a drink, yep. then I'm removing that from my life immediately. Yep. And that includes people, jobs, mm-hmm. social situations, whatever it is, right? That's a boundary for me. That's a yep. hard boundary yep. for me, right? My faith is a hard boundary. Right? Mm-hmm. I go to church on Sundays. If I'm not in church on Sundays because I'm sick, yeah. right? that's a hard boundary for me because my faith is such a big part of my sobriety mm-hmm. and my relationship with the Creator. Mm-hmm. Right? So nothing infringes upon that. Right? So that's just two examples of like building for boundaries. Sure. The other thing that I think is really important when it comes to resilience is, like I said, building a what I call a support network. Yeah. And that's a group of not only people but organizations mm. that you know support you that align with your own personal beliefs and philosophies mm-hmm. that are going to encourage you, inspire you, uplift you, mm-hmm. right? And so that includes family members, as long as it's positive family member relationships. Yep. It includes friends, being proactive with who your friends are. Because yep. we all have what I call default people in our lives, right? Well, I grew up with them from around the way, so yep. you know, we've been friends forever. Well, they're my cousins. Well, i got to work with them. So we have default people. Yep. But we can also be intentional about 
who we want in our inner circle. Mm-hmm. So I work with you and I come and see you and we're friendly, but I might not want you in my inner circle. You're yeah. not part of my network. You yeah. know what I mean? I'm not going to tell you every like intimate detail about right. me. Like, we right. have certain things that we talk exactly. about. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you, like you said, you have your core friends. Yep. You want to make sure you have that support network you yep. know, around you um, so that you know that you're not in this by yourself, mm-hmm. right? The other thing I tell people is that um, it's really important to always continue to keep learning, yeah. right? We want to keep our brains active, mm-hmm. and education really is is the key to empowerment, right? Yeah. Is having that knowledge. And that doesn't mean that you have to run off and get bachelors and two masters and PhDs, yeah. although you can if you want to. Yeah. But you want to continue to learn, and we live in an incredible time now where knowledge is literally at your fingertips, mm-hmm. right? So you want to continue to learn and grow you know, on a consistent basis, um, and then finally, I always tell people, stay connected to the creator in, ha- in whatever path that works for you. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever faith you have mm-hmm. or whatever spirituality you practice, stay connected so that you realize that there's something bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. Because when we feel like the entire weight of the world is on us, right, and we mm-hmm. have nowhere to turn, mm-hmm. that's a huge impact on our mental health. So we have to know that there's something greater than us. Build that spiritual relationship, and and however it works for you, yeah. going to church, being in nature, in you know, being in service, however that works for you. Understand that there is something greater than you, yep. and build a relationship on that, and rely on that. Yeah, you know, so that we don't have to be the end all, be all. Mm-hmm. We don't have to all have all the answers. As smart as I like to think that I am, yeah, I certainly don't have all the answers, and I don't ever want to be the one, mm-hmm. you know, in the room that people think has all the answers, right? Yeah. So, um, which is why people can come to me and tell me things in confidence because I'm going to take that to the creator. I'm not going to let that yep. sit on me as a burden, right? Yep. So you want to create that spiritual relationship. That's really important. Part of the learning piece, going back to that really quickly, is learning things like how you manage your finances, financial yep. literacy, how you have healthy relationships, yep. right? And, um, um, you know, what does civic social services mean? And, mm-hmm. you know, all these different areas that will empower you because you have this knowledge up here. Yeah. You know, and short of a head injury, no one can ever take that knowledge away from you. Yeah. And therefore, you will always be empowered. And therefore, you will always have those resiliency skills to fall back on. Um, so those are some of the basic things you know, that I share with people. And then when I coach people individually, a lot of times, like I said, everybody has their own baggage. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how we can build a self-care strategy that's specific for you. Yes. That meets your priorities and your needs because your priorities and your needs are going to be very different from the next person and you should not feel like you have to align it with theirs. Yes. So let's look at what yours are because you are worthy of having that self-care strategy that's going to empower you. You know, and then continue to build and rebuild that strategy because as you grow and change as a person, you know, those needs are going to change. My needs as a 56-year-old woman are very different from my mm-hmm. needs when I was in early recovery and at 37, right? Yeah. And so my self-care strategy continues to, to evolve and mm-hmm. change, right? Um, a big part of my self-care strategy is just going and hanging out with my grandkids. Yeah. That's like Dr. Angela Davis said, that's pure joy for me. Yeah. You know, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to be anything. They don't care if I'm dressed up. They don't care whether I have makeup. They, all they want is to be with me, and that's pure joy for me. Yes. That's part of my self-care strategy. I, all I do is go and spend a couple hours with my grandkids, and the, everything that's going on in the world doesn't matter just for that little bit of time. Yeah. And then I walk away from my kids' houses with my tank full. Yes, you know? and you're ready so, to go. And that yes. is a part of my strategy. Like mm-hmm. I build that into my week. 
Okay. And I put boundaries around that. Yeah. Like, this is the day that I go see my grandkids. No, I'm sorry, I can't come because I spend time with my grandkids on Sunday afternoons, and that's where I'm going. Yeah. There's, a, there's a hard boundary around that. Mm-hmm. You know, unless my kids say, we're not coming home, don't come. Then that's where I'm going to be. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, and so I think that, that, that we all want to, we all want to um, have the opportunity to build that and make that a priority in mm-hmm. our lives. And it's okay to do that. It's okay to say, I'm making my wellness the priority. Yeah. No, I think that is really important. I think I want to shift it a little bit to talking about when someone implements this, the, some of these strategies that you talk about and they create that self-care plan and they're, they're doing, you know, quote unquote, well, right? Their, right. their wellness is going, how, what are, um, or I guess, how can someone stay that mentally healthy? Is it just like, right. is it something where it's a constant journey, right? You have to constantly have a self-care strategy that you have yes. to always implement. And if you, you know, kind of get off, um, get off of it, then, you know, do you all of a sudden, like, your mental health just goes down the drain? Or, like, what does that all look like and everything? That's a great question, right? So imagine you said, okay, well, I'm going to brush my teeth today. I'm not going to brush them again for the rest of the month. Yeah. You're, by the end of the month, your teeth might fall out of your head, right? Yeah. So mental health care and self-care are intertwined and that is Mm -hmm. a lifelong process Mm -hmm. right so every day you get up you take a shower you wash your hair you brush your teeth Mm -hmm. right every six months to a year you go see the dentist every six months to a year you visit your doctor right i i live with um several autoimmune diseases so i have specialty doctors that i go see every six months right yeah and i'm doing that on a consistent basis right so it's the same thing with your self-care strategy that is something that you are constantly managing on a regular basis now that is no guarantee right i mean life is as life does if you live long enough there's going to be some crisis there's going to be some adversity there's going to be you know some traumas right Um, which is why it's so important to build those resiliency skills so that you can bounce back and hopefully you can bounce back stronger and Mm -hmm. you can bounce back wiser right because you've been building these self-care strategies right so then then when that adversity comes you're going to be like aha I know what to do with that right I know how to handle that Mm -hmm. and if you don't know how to handle it you have people in your network that you can go to right but part of resilient a part of resiliency is also recognizing when you're starting to see signs of being unwell, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So I teach whole trainings around what does oncoming depression look like? What does oncoming anxiety disorders look like? What yeah. does psychosis look like? What does suicide ideation look like, right? So that you personally can begin to recognize these signs in mm-hmm. yourself when you see them, right? as well as being able to recognize those signs in your loved ones that are close to you. Because sometimes when we fall into illness, we might not have that self-awareness right away, right? Um, And for people who have been in recovery for a long time, we're very in tune to our stuff because we're trying to stay clean and sober, right? Most people may not be as in tune to that because we're so busy being in a routine, get up, Mm -hmm. go to work, take care of the kids, take care of the house, manage our our you know our marriages or our relationships or yep. build our career take yep. care of our cars and serve in church and, and so we're not as in tuned as we could be or yep. should be right so a large part of resiliency is watching and recognizing mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so for me like I said I'm in a really good place but I still have one what I call trauma response behavior that I haven't conquered yet okay. and that's staying busy 
Mm. Right? Yeah. People who have lived through trauma, and I've lived through several, have this sense of hypervigilance where we constantly have to stay busy. Yep. Right? So in addition to working full-time here at Alumni Corps, which I love, running my consulting business full-time, I'm also in school full-time. Yep. I sit on several boards. Yeah. People are always asking me to serve on a committee, right? And and I'm constantly saying yes. Yes. Right? So one of the triggers that I often have is I get exhausted. Mm. And when I feel that, when I wake up and I feel like I never slept, that's when I know, all right, Kimmy, that's a trigger. Yeah. Right? It's time for you to start backing up because you are letting yourself fall into this, mm, right? Mm-hmm. As a trigger for me. Um, another trigger is when I find that I am not eating, okay. right? Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I am um, burned out, but sometimes it means I'm overly stressed. Yes. And I'm so busy moving from here to there that I literally forget to eat. And then by the time I do eat, I'm starving. I'm, you know, yeah, I'm trying to eat everything. Right? Which isn't good for your which physical health. Yeah. Exactly, right? Yep. Especially once you get to be my age, your heart's like, what, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, and so those, that's just two examples of, of mm-hmm. triggers that I have where I say, okay, let me back up. Let me pay attention to yep. when was the last time I had a healthy meal. Yep. And, you know, have I been sleeping my full eight hours the way I need to, mm-hmm. right? Um do I need to start telling some people, no, I'm sorry, I can't come? Yeah. Or do I need to cancel a training so I can have a down, t- a down day? Or, mm-hmm. you know, what do I need to do to get myself back on track? Everybody should be able to pay attention mm-hmm. to that, right? Because if we're walking along the street and all of a sudden we get this pain in our side, we're like, ooh, something going on here. Yeah. We're going to either go to urgent care or we're going to call our doctor. Or we're going to be doing something, right? Yeah. Um, so it's the same thing with our mental health. When we start seeing these, these triggers or these signs and symptoms, we have to learn how to stop and say, let me pay attention to this and let me use my resiliency skills and my self-care strategy to mend this mm-hmm. before it gets to be crisis. Mm-hmm. And often what people do is they ignore it and they just keep going. Yeah. Until they literally hit a wall. Yeah. Right? Um, and that has to be a part of it. It has to, you know, brush your teeth, gargle, and floss. We do that every day, yes. right? Yeah. Every day we should be waking up saying, okay, am I okay? Mm-hmm. You know, am I feeling something? Am I exhausted? Mm-hmm. Am I hungry? Am I irritable? Am I worried? Am I scared? Mm-hmm. Am I ruminating? You know, I want to make sure I'm okay, right? Yeah. Um, so that we can continue to be our best selves. So, yes, it's a marathon, and it's something you want to do literally for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, so that you can maintain it. You have to maintain your mental health the same way you, you maintain your health, you yeah. know, everywhere else. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Could you list off a couple, maybe just some general, I know you, you're very in tune with your mental health, just given everything. Could you list off some maybe triggers or signs that family members and friends or even, you know, you're, myself, right? right? Yeah. What, what are some general triggers that most people have that right. says like, oh, his men- that person's mental health is declining. Right. Um, right. Or it's not going well. Like, what can we do? Right. So I'm going to go one better and I am okay. going to recommend two excellent trainings that anybody around the country can Perfect. take. Yeah. Right. Doesn't necessarily have to be with me. It can be with mm-hmm. anybody who's certified and trained. And then I'll tell you about some of the general okay. tips that come out of these trainings. But the first one um, is uh, mental health first aid. Yeah. Okay. And that's a national program, and it specifically teaches you how to sign, how to look for exactly what you just said: signs and symptoms of either an oncoming mental illness mm. or a mental illness that's already in progress. Yeah. Okay? 
It teaches you how to recognize that. So just like physical first aid teaches you how to recognize signs for a heart attack or a stroke or, or somebody choking or something like that, mental health first aid teaches you the same thing. Mm-hmm. What looks like depression, what looks like anxiety disorder, mood yep. disorder, what looks like potential suicide, what looks like a person being in psychosis, yep. so that you can recognize those signs and symptoms, right? Yeah. So the difference between a sign and a symptom, very quickly, a sign is what you see. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So if I see you crying, that's a sign. Yeah. Right? Um, a symptom is what a person feels in, internally. Okay? Mm-hmm. So often people have to recognize their own symptoms because outside, externally, people might not necessarily recognize them. Yeah. Okay? Um, but signs we can always recognize. So a lot of times when people die by suicide, people say, we never saw anything. I guarantee you, you did, but you didn't know what you were seeing. Yeah. So that's what mental health first aid teaches you. Okay. Teaches you how to recognize those signs. Okay. okay. The other one is QPR, which is question, pers- persuade, referral, and that is suicide prevention training. Mm. So again, it teaches you how to recognize and zero in on potential signs and symptoms of someone who's thinking about suicide. Yeah. So some examples are, if you see someone that you normally engage with. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you start noticing, or not even suddenly, sometimes it might just come on subtly, right? Yeah. But you start noticing that all of a sudden they're very unkempt. They're not keeping up with their personal hygiene anymore. Yep. You notice that they're looking very tired. Perhaps they're not sleeping. Mm-hmm. You notice that they aren't eating anymore, mm-hmm. or they're eating a lot, yeah. right? Or they're eating unusual. They keep eating the same things over and over again. Yep. You notice that they're isolating where they used to come and hang out with your core group of friends, they're not doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. They're not answering the phone. They're not showing up at church, mm-hmm. right? They're withdrawing, right? Mm-hmm. You notice that um, they're suddenly agitated or irritable a lot, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You notice that they're becoming secretive. Yeah. Um, they start using buzzwords like, you know, what does it all matter? Yeah. I'm too tired to care. No one's ever going to miss me. Mm-hmm. I can't do this anymore. You start noticing those buzz, buzzwords, right? People who are normally um, pretty easygoing and level-headed suddenly start having grandiose ideas or start um, becoming very accusatory yeah. or start becoming very paranoid, right? People that you normally have a close relationship with start withdrawing from you, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're no longer having conversations with you anymore mm-hmm. or you're feeling like there's they're holding back and you're sensing that there's something they want to tell you but they they don't know how to tell you yeah right a big one is when you start seeing people give things away mm-hmm. okay yeah. i mean unless you're in your 80s you know and you're planning for the end of life yes people typically don't give away things especially things that are important to them mm-hmm. now i'm not talking about normal circumstances where i'm downsizing from a four-bedroom house to an apartment so i want to give you this yes but when people just randomly start saying i want you to have these prized possessions of yes. mine, right? Yeah. And they start giving things away, right? Um, when they start making end-of-life plans. Mm-hmm. When you start seeing people who start smoking a lot more than they ever did, yeah. when they suddenly start drinking a lot, yeah. you know, or you start seeing signs of potential drug use, mm-hmm. right? Um, you start smelling drugs, you start seeing drugs, they look like they're loaded, right? Which yeah. if you look at people, you can see it, right? Mm-hmm. When you start noticing these things, this is somebody that I, you know, go to dinner with two or three times a month, but I noticed the last couple of times we went to dinner, they had like four drinks and they hardly touched their food. Okay, something's going on, right? And so mental health first aid would be able to teach you 
how to have a conversation with that person and say, you know, I'm a little concerned. Yeah. Because it looks like you might be struggling a little bit and and you know that you can trust me. Just mm -hmm. you know, I'm here if you want to have a conversation. Yeah. You know, teaches you how to do things like that, right? Yeah. Because you hit the nail on the head. Intuitively, we know when something's broken, yeah. when something doesn't look right, but often we won't say anything because we don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. And even if we do say, is everything okay? And they say, no, we don't even know what to do with that. Yeah, right? they say no, and you're like, uh, okay. Like they right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we don't teach how to manage mental health in school. Uh -huh. We barely teach how to manage physical health in school. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And so it's like, I'm not asking any questions because I don't even know what to do with that. I'm not touching that. Yeah, and it could be, I'm struggling with mental health as well, and I'm, I don't even know how to help myself exactly. at the same time, right? It's just that exactly. circle. Mm -hmm. You know, or we get indignant. Well. They didn't show up for dinner. Well, I'm not calling them, yeah. you know. But maybe they didn't show up for dinner because they're so depressed they couldn't get out of bed. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and so those are two excellent trainings. And again, most people, we know intuitively when something looks a little off. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, and there's a wealth of information, you know, online. So a couple of websites that I always encourage people to visit is the National Institute of Mental Health. Okay has a wealth of information. Mm -hmm. The National Alliance of Mental Illness mm -hmm. has a wealth of information. Um, Mentalhealth.org, I think it is, has a wealth of information. Um, Depression Bipolar Support Alliance has mm -hmm. a wealth of information. And the biggest one, Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Yeah. All these are excellent websites that are reputable because there's a lot of trash out there. Mm -hmm. These are websites that are reputable. These are organizations that I go to yes. to get certifications, to learn more, to mm -hmm. grow so that I can teach. So we are fortunate that we have all this information literally at our fingertips. If you you know, don't want to or don't have the time to literally sit in a training, there's still so much that you can learn to be able to manage your own mental health yeah. and to be able to help advocate you know, for those who might not be able to help themselves, yeah. right? A lot of people don't know that you can be so deep in depression that you can literally go into psychosis. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know that you can experience psychosis in mania from bipolar. You can experience psychosis because of some sort of drug that you took, right? Yeah. And so, but when we see somebody in psychosis on the street and we want to criminalize them, we want yeah. to call the police, oh my God, they're going to kill everybody, as opposed to realizing that people who are in psychosis are the most vulnerable because yeah. they literally have detached from reality and they have no way of protecting themselves. So how do we engage with that? Yeah, right? can you define psychosis for any maybe any listeners that yes. might not know what it is? Yes, I'm so sorry. No, so good. psychosis is um, either a hallucination or a delusion, mm. and, I'll, and I'll explain the difference between the two. So a hallucination is something that someone experiences through any of their five senses. Okay. Senses. Senses, <laughs> <laughs> right? So your sight, your smell, your taste, your touch, your hearing, yeah. okay? If you are experiencing something through one or more of yep. those five sentences, that's sentence senses, I keep saying sentences, senses <laughs> yes. that isn't real. Yep. Okay. So if I said to you, oh my God, look, there's that pink elephant in the window. Do you see it? Do you see it? Yeah. That would be a hallucination. It would be a visual hallucination, mm -hmm. right? Or if I'm hearing voices in my head, somebody's talking to me in my head, yeah. right? You know what it's like when you wear headphones yep. and you don't hear anything except for what's in those headphones? Yep. Imagine hearing that in your head and there are no headphones, right? Yep. That's an auditory hallucination. Mm -hmm. um, many people who are in recovery will experience 
um, 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 uh, hallucinations in, of taste. Okay. All right. Or a hallucination of smell. Yeah. So when I was in early recovery for the first couple of years, I would wake up tasting liquor. Wow. And it would be mm-hmm. so real that I would wake up in a panic like, oh my God, I must have had a drink last night. Yeah. And I'd be looking around like, where's the bottle? I must have had a drink. Yeah. That's how real that hallucination wow. was yeah. to me, right? So that's a, that's a form of mm-hmm. psychosis. That makes okay? sense, yeah. Delusion is an irrational thought. Okay. Okay? Mm-hmm. Of something that's not true. Mm-hmm. So... If you wake up one day and suddenly believe that you're, I don't know, the king of Russia, yeah. you know, that would be a delusion, right? So when I teach mental health first aid, I always tell people the difference between the two is if I said, oh my God, look, there's Beyonce, mm-hmm. that would be a hallucination. Yeah. If I walked into the room and said, I am Beyonce, that would be a delusion. That makes sense. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so, but both of those are forms of psychosis. Mm-hmm. And often people who fall into psychosis, whether it's schizophrenia or any other illness, psychosis is a symptom of a, of a major illness, yeah. regardless of what it is. Yep. But we see it from the outside and it looks scary, right? Mm-hmm. This person might be wearing their clothes backwards. They might be talking to somebody that we don't see. Yeah. They might be punching the air. Yep. They might be walking around their World War II uniform. Yeah. You know, and it's weird to us. We're like, ooh, this is spooky. What's going on? Yeah, it's kind of like that side step, but you cross the street and kind of just like look right. up. Yeah, because you're just not really know. sure what to mm-hmm. do, right? Um, or they might be having delusions and you're having a conversation with them and also the conversation gets really weird. You're like, yeah. this is not making any sense, mm-hmm. you know, and they, but to them, it is making sense, right? So how do you engage with that? And the only reason I brought that up is because that's an example of yeah. how we want to learn how to engage with people when they are going into a mental health crisis, right? Oh, for sure. Um, and normalize what that looks like. Because if someone is in a restaurant and suddenly goes falls into psychosis, it's no different than someone in a restaurant who suddenly has a heart attack. Yeah. They both are literally having a crisis. Yeah. Right? And so we need to know how to handle one the same way we know how to handle the other. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And I imagine those those websites and those resources that you shared will have some resources yes. on that a as well. A lot of information. Yes. And again, there's a wealth of trainings out there that are reputable. Yes. Which is why I recommend specifically those sites. And I know you'll, you'll capture them. Yes. Um, I recommend those sites specifically because those are sites that I trust. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Um, and like I said, I'm certified in a lot of trainings through mm-hmm. a lot of those organizations to go out into the community. And again, normalize this conversation and make, you know, um, make people aware mm-hmm. of how important this information yeah. is, right? So um, I will probably never get rich being a facilitator, but, that, but this brings me great joy no. just being able to you know, share the information and talk mm-hmm. about it. Right? Yeah, and all the resources that are that have been shared, the websites and everything else will be in the description for people to click on and everything. Yes. And kind of follow. So we'll make sure that happens. Kimmy, I, I think we're at a good point. We've covered a lot of stuff on mental health. And I know we're just scratching the surface. I didn't even hit all the questions that I want to do, but like we have we've been able to really talk about a lot of stuff. And so one I wanted to pre- I wanna say thank you for the time that you've given me just to come in and talk for a little bit. I have two wrap up questions for you, more sure. just personal and not the broad mental health. But um, you know, one thing with mental health, I think it's really trying to become your best self. Right, right when we talk about all this so so how how do you become your best self <laughs> you've got some good questions thank you <laughs> one thing i worked really really hard to do 
is to be my authentic self, right? To allow yeah. myself to be who and what I am, right? I am a black middle-aged Christian woman, mm-hmm. and I allow myself to be a black middle-aged Christian woman in all my authenticity. Yeah. I give myself permission to bring my whole self, my true self, into every room that I'm in and, and bring my voice to every table that I'm at, right? That's how, um, that's how I... Um, maintain my sanity mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's giving myself permission to just be who and what I am and lean into that you know and I think that that is um, that's really important and I didn't come into that until I was like well into recovery you know where I said I'm going to lay down the burdens of what everybody thinks I'm supposed to do and I'm just going to lean into who and what I am mm-hmm. you know Yeah. so that works for me no I think that's perfect I think I think that is a good place to wrap up this conversation just with that. So thank you again, Kimmy, for You're talking right. to us about mental health. If you know, I'll link link her website and her consulting agency in case anyone wants to reach out and we'll we'll link all the resources shared. But really appreciate the conversation. Hope we can talk again sometime soon yes. and just continue diving deeper into into mental health. So appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me.